Hello, Hello and, and welcome, welcome to Drunk Mythology. Mythology. I'm your co-host, Krista Hunsaker. And I'm your co-host, Christian Madonna. We have a special guest in with us today. Yes, we are interviewing the author, Barbara Barnett. Hello. Hi, how are you? Doing great. Um, so you're here uh, talking a little bit about your book, uh, The Alchemy of Glass, correct? Indeed. Great. Uh, do you want to talk about yourself, what got you interested in mythology, and um, maybe talk a little bit more about your book? Yeah, I mean, we could introduce you, but I think you'll probably do a better job than uh, we will. Tell us a bit about yourself and um, you know your, your book, and it's a part of a series. It is book two. Could be a sequel. Could be book two of a series. Don't know yet. Working on book three. We'll see. Um, so... Wow, this book actually was inspired, the series itself was inspired by my enduring fascination with the British ballads, especially the supernatural ballads, which kind of gets back into uh, British mythology. Um, my main character, whose name is Galen Erkildoon, is the descendant of Thomas the Rhymer. Oh. Um, and Thomas the Rhymer was... Uh, also known, you know, the, the British ballads and, and all that. And he apparently was uh, kidnapped by the Elfin, the Queen of Elfinland and kept there for seven years. And when he returned, he returned with a gift of prophecy and possible immortality, although there are different schools of thought on that. And uh, it is also said that he still lives beneath the hills of Eildon in the borders of Scotland. So I've always been interested in the ballads. When I was at undergrad, I did a paper on it. I was a folk singer, and I did a lot of singing about the British of the British ballads and then started doing some research and just found myself really, uh, really intrigued. So when I wanted to create a fictional character with a past, um, I thought, well, why not make him the descendant of Thomas the Rhymer? And... Um, so, and Th Thomas the Rhymer was actually a real person who lived in, I think it was the 13th century, uh, 14th, 13th century, um, and was a confederate of William Wallace. So, but there's a legend part of it and there's a real part of it. And as I was doing research for the book, I, I've also been interested in, in mythology of all kinds. I guess um, I wrote my first mythology thing when I was in sixth grade and we had to pick a Greek hero and write an essay. Oh, who did you pick? I picked Athena. Ah, uh, she is great. So she was awesome. I was also noted for really terrible penmanship. <laughs> <laughs> and enough so that they would keep me back from field trips, which was kind of weird. But they kept me back from field trips. Anyway, I wrote this essay about Athena. And my teacher immediately said she could not have wrote a note to my parents saying, there's no possible way she could have written this First of all, the writing is way too beautiful. <laughs> so, um, so that was kind of my introduction to um, to writing and mythology. Um, and I've read I've read the Odyssey. I've got, you know I'm, I, I've I've loved mythology. Um, I've, I've and when I was writing uh, the first book, Apothecary's Curse, one of the features or one of the one of the flaws of my immortal character is he had three fingers of one of his hands had been severed when he was a prisoner in Bedlam in the mid 19th century. So um, I, I looked up on Google and I was like, okay, so what would happen to an immortal dude 
if uh, perchance he had three fingers of his hand whacked off. Would he regrow them like a salamander or what would happen? Of course, right, how many immortal people are there? But I just thought, well, okay, maybe someone's written something about that speculating. And I came across the story of Nuada. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. But anyway, Nuada, which goes back into Celtic mythology and uh, the story of him and Arya, uh, sorry, and Aramid uh, and the Tuatha de Danan. Aramid was the goddess of healing. And Nuada was this warrior prince destined to be the king. And his hand had been uh, severed in battle. And um, Aramid's father, who was the god of medicine, healed Nuada with a silver hand. Now, if that reminds you a little bit of Jamie Lannister in <laughs> Game of Thrones, I'm guessing that George R. R. Martin is pretty familiar with this legend as well. I was about That's- to say, I was like, this all seems very familiar. I was really going Tommy Freeman. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, whoa, silver hand, right? Well, that wasn't good enough for Aramid. And Aramid, who the legend says, who the, who the myth of her says, that she kept all the cures for everything that had befallen humankind and will befall humankind, she carried in the, the beautiful cloak that she wore. So um, she actually healed. She felt that Nuada couldn't really be the king if he wasn't whole. So she presumed to say, well, you know, a silver hand isn't going to really cut it. Why don't, so to speak, um, I'm going to give him a flesh and bone hand, which she did. And there's like a whole incantation, she says, and that's actually in the first book at the end. And um, she, she does. And her father is absolutely livid. He's furious. And he takes her cloak and he just, just, shakes the whole thing out and all of the um the 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 healing all of the cures for all of just scattered to the four winds never to be found again oh wow yeah i think the father was probably most upset because he was like i gave him that silver hand so we could like bitch slap werewolves (laughs) like it was perfect what did you do this for right (laughs) <laughs> it's like, all right, now punishing everyone forever. No more medicine. No more medicine for you. You've lost it. You've lost it. So <laughs> one of the conceits of the book is like, well, okay, so the Tuatha de Danan were supposed to be an incredibly technologically advanced civilization for their time. And um, I was like, well, if they were that technologically advanced, wouldn't Aramid have been smart enough to make a backup copy? So she did, and in the guise of this uh, incredibly lavishly illuminated Book of Healing, which is at the center of both books. Oh. So, ah. And how it gets into my hero's hands is that, uh, remember I said that he's the descendant of Thomas the Rhymer, who was abducted by the fairy folk, while the Tuatha de Danan were also the fairy folk of most notably uh, associated with Ireland, but there's all kinds of scholarship that that place them in Scandinavia and well how did they get to Ireland did they go through Scotland maybe mm-hmm. they did so I had already established that my hero was Scottish so it's like I had to figure that out so um so uh the book was actually given to Thomas when he was abducted by Aramid and her folk who were who are also fairy folk 
And so that's how the book was passed down generation to generation. So it's really tied up in that legend. Um, I also use the, um, the, the, the Greek myth of uh, the Minotaur and um, Ariadne. In fact, my hero's daughter's name is Ariadne. Um, because, and the story of her and uh, Theseus and the Minotaur and Dionysus. And I kind of use that in and out of both books, actually. So, oh, wow. So, so a good, a good like, uh, interweaving of the two different uh, myths and two different origins of those myths, then. That's yeah. great. Yeah. So um, it, it's great. And, and I say somewhere in the book, one of the books, that, you know, where does history, where does history end and legend begin? Oh, very true. I know we talk about that a lot where it's like, and you mentioned earlier about there being a actual historical person, but then also this legend about them as well. Right, 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 right. right. So yeah. So anyway, uh, as for me, uh, my background is in the hard sciences and uh, chemistry and biology and uh, graduate work in political science. So politics always is a thing for me. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I live in a very kind of enchanted area that we just moved to in the Chicago area, which you probably think is flat as a pancake, which most people do. <laughs> and I live a hundred feet above Lake Michigan on a high bluff, just about 20 miles north of downtown Chicago. So, oh, wow. That's beautiful. I also know that's a setting in your most recent, recent book, right? Is the Chicago, um, the coastline there, huh? Yes. Yeah. In both books, actually. So and we literally completely talk about maybe a touch of the supernatural involved in that randomness. We actually uh, had just, we just moved here in uh, November. And uh, this place has always been incredibly fascinating to me since I was a little girl. And uh, a job that I got, uh, my day job, uh, happened to land us here. And uh, the position came with the house. It's a 110 year old house that looks like it came out of the movie Psycho, but it, it's a really <laughs> old house, a 110 year old house. And right on the, like about, we're about 300 feet away from the coastline. So yeah, that's that, awesome. That sounds like a book of movie setting. Yeah, yeah. there's definitely ghosts there for sure. Wow, it's definitely, <laughs> definitely enchanted. Yes. yes, my husband insists there's a ghost in the attic. So, oh, is that, are they friendly or not so? So far, they've been really quiet. Oh, they're one of those roommates. <laughs> <laughs> Although my dog gets spooked from time to time. <laughs> oh, one of those roommates. Quiet <laughs> yeah. dog spooking, leaving food everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I also know in your story, you set um, part of it up against the backdrop of the Columbian Exposition. Was this also one of the reasons that Chicago fascinated you? So um, I'm a native Chicagoan, I confess. Um, we do not put ketchup on hot dogs ever. <laughs> um, there's a meme going around now. Uh, Lori Lightfoot, who's the mayor of Chicago, has, uh, you will put on your mask now or the dog will get it. And she's got this big thing of ketchup over a hot dog that she's holding. So <laughs> it was in my head. But um, the Chicago area, I mean, I, I've been here my whole life. And where the Chicago, where the Columbian Exposition was, which was a really cool thing, um, there's only one thing standing, and that's um, the, the Museum of Science and Industry, which is in the Hyde Park near the University of Chicago, where the Midway was, near, not far from where the Midway was. Well, I, I wanted to set uh, part of the book on Navy Pier, which I realized as I was doing research on the Columbian Exposition, A, there was no Navy Pier in 1893, and B, 
uh, it was way far away from where, where it would have been. So it's like, okay, what do I do here? So I do have a really strong familiarity with Chicago. So the Columbian Exposition I thought was cool because I wanted to make Galen a glassmaker for Tiffany. And uh, Tiffany's works were at the Columbian Exposition. Um, and there's actually, there was, it's not there anymore. There was a museum of uh, Tiffany's work from the exposition that's underneath uh, Navy Pier that actually is another setting for the book here. In, in, in the second book, because um, I wanted to resurrect it and build my own <laughs> mythology about it. Um, but uh, I've always loved Navy Pier and being right on the water and, and the pier juts a mile out into the lake. So it's just such a beautiful, magical place. So, And I also wanted to bring Galen and Nikola Tesla together. Oh yeah, that was in your, in like the first chapter in, of your book, huh? Yeah, it was a great reveal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And and actually, he's more, I mean, it wasn't just a one-off chapter. It seems like it. But as you move along in the book, it's, it's, it actually means something. So. Yeah. And your, um, your protagonist is um, an alchemist and that's where you got like the chemistry background coming in, I think. Um, yes. With a flair, a little bit of the immortality too. Yeah. Can you tell us more about that? So he's a genius. I mean, Flat out, he would be he would be a genius even if he wasn't immortal. He's just really really smart. I love writing smart characters. <laughs> My men, women, everyone has to be pretty smart. Um, but Galen um, learned uh, alchemy and chemistry and medicine at the foot of his father in the 16th century when he was late 16th century when he was born. Um, but that accretion of knowledge has been now over a period of nearly 500 years. So he's kind of internalized all of it. So he could really be a professor, which I kind of make him a visiting professor at Northwestern from time to time even. But my own background in chemistry and in biology made um, kind of interweaving the chemistry, uh, the kinds of metals that go into glass, um, the lab, his lab, his, his thirst for discovery and invention, are really part of my own curiosity. And I really think that's what makes genius is um, is unrelenting curiosity and acting on it, so. Oh yeah, especially even with curiosity of playing with fire as it will and uh, materials you don't quite understand in the yeah. search for the like philosopher's stone or like elixir of immortality. Um, we talk a lot on our show about characters and their quest for immortality. That seems to be like a main theme in mythology, right? Plenty of kings and heroes. Yeah. <laughs> Gilgamesh. <laughs> yeah. Gilgamesh, Sun Wukong, one, like, yeah. yeah, everyone's all about that immortality. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's not, you know, it's not always all it's cracked up to be, right? I mean, you could be an immortal person, but there's a lot of, there's a Yiddish word called, it's Saurus. It's like, it's, it's how it sounds. It's like, oh man, really not again. You know, there's a lot of... <laughs> that goes along with uh, with actually being immortal. And one of them, the one that really breaks his heart is that um, he has seen loves and family go and he doesn't want to get entangled in any kind of relationship, yet he finds himself, he's a romantic, I suppose, yet he finds himself falling in love in this book. He oh yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely part of it. Like with um, vampires or like modern day vampires, that's a big right. character thing of like, 
you see everyone die around you. But I love the idea of someone who just like keeps getting like an arm chopped off or like their head, like very Deadpool-esque. And they're like, oh man, not again. <laughs> yeah, it's very much done it all, seen it all, this again. Or this like, again. oh, we're at war again. The tenth time <laughs> well, I, 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 hopefully I don't fall into that trap too much. Um, Cause he can get very badly injured and he can get very, very sick. And he has. And he never did recover from the uh, the, the three fingers being lopped off mm-hmm. um, until the very very end of the first book, where it was a touch of magic. We don't know how that happened. I still we still don't know how that happened. I do, but the readers haven't figured that out yet. And it's not that it's a big deal, but it was kind of Ariadne uh, going overboard again. Not Ariadne, sorry, Aramid going overboard again. <laughs> I have all these women with A's in their name, and I yeah. And it's like, I don't know why that happened. It was random. <laughs> yeah, there's been a lot of feminine names of A's, like especially in Greek mythology, like you said, there's just so yeah. many of them. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. Athena. Mm-hmm. See, I think maybe that's where it started with my first essay that I wrote on, on Athena. Maybe that's where it started. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's all the way from there. Uh, so it totally makes sense bringing in you know, everything you know with your background in chemistry and biology and as a Chicagoan, like bringing all these settings into the world and really uh, developing the world around that. Can you talk about some of the other settings in the stories? Sure. Um, So one of my big settings, uh, major setting is London, um, which I'm going to confess here now, I have never been to London, but I am a complete and total Anglophile. (laughs) <laughs> so my a lot of my uh, literature influence in my writing is from the Brontes and from uh, uh, well Tolstoy wasn't London but that era Dickens mm-hmm. uh, Poe although Poe was an American but it was like that era but I thought Smithfield London and as I said I am an Anglophile would be a perfect setting for a dreary dark dank um, medical story and. Oh. The- class war between physicians, gentlemen physicians, and apothecaries, um, which is what Galen is in, in this in the first book, um, I thought was really kind of cool. And then setting that up against um, the sort of early days of grave robbing and the Burke and Hare who would, you know, like kill people and sell the body parts to anatomists. But I thought that was kind of an interesting setting. So London is a really important setting. It is there... Um, he becomes friendly with uh, Simon Bell, and Simon Bell is uh, the secondary main character, male, main male character in both books. And Simon is uh, has a connection to Arthur Conan Doyle, because, and that's another love of mine is Conan Doyle and the Sherlock Holmes stories, and and uh, so I make reference to more than reference to that. But Simon Bell is related to Joseph Bell, who's in the very first scene of the first book. And Joseph Bell was uh, Conan Doyle's medical mentor. And of course, Conan Doyle had a lifelong belief in the fairy folk, which plays very strongly into the second book. So that's, that's a really important setting is London. And my other really important setting is the borders of Scotland, which is Galen's ancestral homeland and the home of Thomas the Rhymer, and a lot, the Eildon Hills and the and uh, Michael Scott out of also out of Celtic legend. Um, it said that oh, Michael Scott, like The Office, or like <laughs> no, Mike, no, no, <laughs> Michael Scott of like the 
13th century Michael Scott, ah, who huh. said to have split a mountain in the borders of Scotland into its three peaks, which is the Eildon Hills, those three peaks. And there's a lot of magic and myth and mystery that goes into that area. A lot of the, the Walter, Sir Walter Scott's um, borders stories, borders minstrelsy is all set there. So and also that's Conan Doyle's, uh, one of Conan Doyle's uh, homes uh, at some time in his life. So that was a really important part of the story. And I really wanted um, Thomas the Rhymer to really come to life, even though we don't actually meet him. Um, we do kind of meet him through his descendant, Galen. So, so that was the other really important, um, important place. And I set within the second novel, there's a ruined monastery that is based on a real monastery that was in the borders area. Um, the real place was called Sutra Isle. And um, it was uh, one of the things that inspired the novel, the second novel, was a discovery by medical archaeologists about four, three or four years ago, where they were digging things up at this uh, ruined monastery and they were finding medical cures like anesthetics and analgesics and aborophacents and all these things that could not possibly have been within the technological uh, envelope of things that were available at during in, in in times like the 13th century, 12th century, 13th century when this monastery was like at its height. So that was like, ooh, what's that all about? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a really cool finding. And it it's does like, sort of bring the magic to it. Yeah, like a real life archaeological mystery there. Yeah. 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 So I, I wanted to make that something really important. So I set it there, but I didn't want to set it into a real, like a real place. So because I, I wanted to play with the, I wanted to have it sort of an enhanced reality. So mm -hmm. a little more freedom. Yeah. To yeah. I didn't want the historians to come after me. And they they loved it. The historical novel society has really loved both books. So I'm really yay excited about that. Oh, I bet that's a tough like committee where you're like in the center of the room and there's the panel of judges and you got like a single spotlight on you. They're like, how did we go from here to there in a matter of two? Two, 20 minutes? That's 40 <laughs> miles away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's funny because I needed Galen to travel from London to the borders of Scotland and back as fast as possible. And I was like, okay, it needs to be two days. And the more research I did, the more I was like, no, that's not actually possible. <laughs> no matter how fast a horse, no matter how good a rider he is, no matter how many times he changes horses along the way, the best I could do was seven days. <laughs> so that's uh. what happened. So it's where reality meets the writer and it's like, yeah, no, he's not that magical. So <laughs> I mean, those sort of things really kind of bind in the, the world. It's got its own physics that, mm -hmm. that that line up with ours to where we can believe the little bits beyond it. Exactly. Yeah, it's difficult tying in the fantasy and sci-fi elements with the reality of setting it in a historical novel, like a historical time period. Right. Yeah, that was kind of tricky. No, it's, um, you know, I love sci-fi. And I actually have not necessarily intended it to go sci-fi and particular to, and I'm not going to say where in sci-fi it went because um, it's kind of a spoiler to do that. Mm -hmm. But um, I really had not intended that, but it's where the novel took me. But yes, I think the, the thing that kind of is my guiding force is uh, Arthur Clarke would say it, and it's, I don't think he originated the, the phrase is that um, magic is only what we don't yet understand of science. 
And that's really my mantra when I write is I have to ground all the fantasy, all the magic of it in real, a real history and real science or else it doesn't work for me as a reader or as a writer. So that's kind of my overarching thing. No, that's such a great perspective to bring into it to being that way. And I love how I'm you know, bringing in a lot of influence from Arthur Conan Doyle and from that time period where he wrote things like Sherlock Holmes, who was like bound by scientific uh, method and like very much a scientific approach to everything he does. And yet Arthur Conan Doyle was a mysticist and believed in ghosts, seances and all of these things, mm-hmm. kind of a blending of magic and science and seeing where they meet or run off. Right. Well, I, actually, that was another real huge influence on the book. It was like, OK, I've actually given talks called the Conan Doyle conundrum. How does the man who is a, a journalist be a physician and see the creator of the most rational, logical, fictional character ever created um, believe in fairies to his dying day? And that's really one of the big questions that I explore in uh, Alchemy of Glass. It's like a huge underlying question. Yeah, and alchemy itself, I mean, you know, being very early on trying to understand and a lot of like scientific method and reasoning coming right. out from those early, early days pre our modern science, you know, alchemy was mixing a little bit of magic and trying to understand what really was just science they didn't understand yet. Right. If you dig deep into people, even like um, Sir Isaac Newton and those guys, I mean, it's like you scratch a little bit and there you find an alchemist. Mm hmm. Yeah, and they're all about like and trans like transmuting metals is something that we know to exist in the scientific world, but back then it was the magic, you know. Right, right exactly. Yeah. So cool. Um, so you did mention that you have a deity that you're very connected to, Athena. Um, are there any other like mythological heroes or villains or creatures that you sort of really like come back to? Um so many, so many. Um <laughs> I, I love the story of Ariadne. It's such a, in a way, it's such a romantic story. Um, Ariadne and um, Theseus and how she helps Theseus defeat the Minotaur and then he dumps her. Uh, um, classic love story. Classic <laughs> hero. By Dionysus, right? So, you know, so I, I love that. Um, there are actually... Um, mythological beings in Jewish mythology that I'm exploring for another bit of uh, writing that I'm doing that isn't connected to this book series, but is a different series. So Lilith uh, has been given sort of this sort of mythological casting in different ways. And so, and the Gollum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That immediately brought to mind, I was like, if you were to connect it, I'd just like, you got to go to Prague sometime. That could, uh, that would be a connection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but Golubs have been written about so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to find a different, different uh, mythological creature out of Jewish mythology. And there are tons of them. You wouldn't think so, but there are tons of them. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like looking at ancient stories and stories that have been written with like heroes' journeys, especially like you mm-hmm. mentioned Gilgamesh and how that ties in. It ties in a lot to like Babylonian mythology, which yes. was yeah. religion. Yep. All connected. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Even in previous um, 
a previous guest we had, one of them uh, was a friend of ours who told us about like the Leviathan and Ziz and (laughs) yeah, multiple like Jewish mythological monsters that are really these incredible titans, these giants Mm -hmm. that uh, we really don't think about. Exactly. Those are all like Talmudic um, creations and stories. So it's rich. It's a very, you wouldn't, as I said, you wouldn't think so, but uh, because Judaism is often thought of as such a pragmatic, practical religion, but there's a lot of spirituality and and, uh, mythological stuff that goes along with it too, so... Oh, absolutely. Same with like Christianity early, like the early books where yeah. it's like plagues and Moses parting the sea and stuff. Yep. It's oh, wild. I mean, <laughs> stuff saints can do. Yeah. Those, those are heroes and magicians. And <laughs> <laughs> So um, what it, is your favorite myth then? Because you talked about favorite uh, characters and um, people. Is your favorite myth then Theseus and Aradne? Or do you have some other one? No, I, I'm going to I'm going to stick with uh, Aramid and Nuada. And, uh, yeah. uh, and the silver hand. And uh, yeah, I'm going to stick with that one. I do like me a good like Ariel's dad losing his shit in the Cave of Wonders kind of a thing where he's yes. just like wrecking things. I love that with like this story of <laughs> the dad is like, how dare you heal this guy that I gave a cool silver hand to? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I just think that was so cool. And I actually found that on, uh, I didn't know the story that well. And um, I was like, I saw this and I was like, oh my God, this is like an amazing, amazing, amazing story. Now, how do I get them to Scotland? (laughs) (laughs) I love that. It's like, okay, I got to get them here. (laughs) I got to get them here. And I actually found a, uh, an actual historical thing that takes them through. Uh, They, there's a, there's a one scholarly thought that they are actually the descendants of the tribe of Dan you know, the original 10 tribes of Israel. And they came up through the Iberian Peninsula and up through Scandinavia, down through Denmark, like to a hot day, Danan, um, and down into Ireland, but they had to have crossed through Scotland. So that's where I was like, okay, fine, we'll do that. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I would say that's, that's of the, these days, that's probably my favorite myth is the story of uh, Ariadne and, I'm uh, sorry, Aramid and uh, Nevada and uh, the Silver Hand. Yeah, that's awesome. Again, I just love the fact that it's like a silver hand and I would totally just be like, Avast! And <laughs> oh yeah, no, at that point just I was laying down the challenge everywhere you go, just slapping people left and right. Oh, I would have added the silver handed to my name and just been like, <laughs> this is what I'm known for, is fighting with it. <laughs> this is me now. <laughs> yes, although Jamie Lannister didn't uh he he was sort of a sort of a, a burden on him, an anvil around his, I guess, arm. Yeah, they they always called him like a cripple or like used yeah. against them. But he's totally should have just been backhanding them. Like, is this? <laughs> yeah, laying down the challenge like you're like a um challenging someone with a gauntlet or like a glove back right. in the day, and just bam. Oh, yeah. Backing with that. <laughs> right on. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if Cersei would have liked that, but <laughs> Cersei, arm wrestle me. Do it now. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh no, she'd, she'd actually just pull it out of it. Yeah, <laughs> she, would. she would. She totally would do that. So, besides like mythological stories, you mentioned big fan of like, you know, sci fi and pop culture. Like, what are some of your other favorite stories and influences um, just in your writing or just favorite books, favorite shows, all those sort of things that inspire your storytelling? 
So um, funnily enough, I kind of, I got my first book deal because I was writing a weekly column for Blog Critics Magazine on uh, the show House and with Hugh Laurie. And the column became so incredibly popular that, and it, it, it is in its own way, a telling of Sherlock Holmes. It's a Conan Doyle, like so strongly influenced by Conan Doyle um, that a guy just wrote a uh, book on, um, on paradigm shifts in Conan Doyle's work and quoted my book on house. So, uh, which is interesting. Ah. Um, and so, so that, that was an influence that TV show was, but um, I think the twilight, you know, as far as TV shows, the twilight zone, because I always like to be caught unawares and unexpected to make that big left turn. In oh, my always the twist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't like to do anything very straightforward. And if I did, my husband would catch me on it and he would say, yeah, I don't think so. This is a little too on the nose. So, um, and he's right, you know, so, I, so the Twilight Zone for sure. Um, as far as writers go, um, I, you know, it's, it's funny because besides the biggies like Arthur Clarke and Isaac Asimov, um, and Frank Herbert and Heinlein. Um, I really kind of go back to the H.G. Wells. Um, I love H.G. Wells' canon, um, uh, Conan Doyle's canon of Holmes. Um, I like the great Russians. I love Tolstoy. I love the storytelling. I love the fact that in some of those great novels, you've got this war story going on, but you've got this beautiful romance going on on the side, and you've got all these different levels of things. Um, I also like braided narratives. So, uh, by its book, a, a S by it, I think it's a S by it, uh, book, uh, possession, which twists and weaves between two time periods. So that, um, very much an influence. Um, and, uh, Ray Bradbury, of course. So I have lots of influences that influence my writing. I'm hoping that my biggest influencer of my dialogue would be a cross between Arthur, uh, Joseph Heller and uh, Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting mix. <laughs> because I really like quick, rapid dialogue. Mm. And so if, I, if I'm always calling to mind, okay, so to channel Sorkin right now. <laughs> Let me do a seance for Sorkin real quick. I got, I'll just yeah. call him up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I tend to like, and I also love British detective fiction. Um, really, really love British detective fiction. So because they're telling stories about murder and crime and violence, but you always have the heart of it, this really kind of tortured soul of a detective. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, you're anti-hero. Yeah. My anti-hero, my Byronic hero, as it were. So, <laughs> which is, uh, yeah. So I, it's one of the reasons I liked uh, Stephen King's Dark Tower series because it was so Byron-esque and uh, his hero is so damaged. Any, any <laughs> book that's got a damaged hero, man, that's, you know, for me, so. <laughs> I mean, it always makes, it's far more interesting to have them and have their flaws and their um, struggles be far more relatable that way. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. Um, but again, with the uh, very fast-paced dialogue, having the very clever heroes, I mean, again, clever heroes are also far more interesting. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. I always think um, Batman, not Superman. That's kind of my dividing line. 
Oh, oh detective, I see. A damaged detective here. Yeah, oh, yeah. Tortured soul detective. <laughs> and, I mean, Superman is just like vanilla, like good at everything. The right, American right, right. <laughs> Captain America, not so much. Batman, oh, the Dark Knight, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Dark Knight. <laughs> oh, absolutely. He's, he's gritty. He's certainly tortured. <laughs> yeah, yeah he, he, he gets through with his smarts as well. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because um, I... When I was writing for blog critics, I went to Comic-Con for several years in a row, San Diego, and uh, writing about different TV shows. It was actually pretty cool. Um, and the one anti-hero I did not, did not get into was Hannibal. <laughs> Although I went to their parties. They had great parties. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very ominous, though. I'm not going to lie. Like, Hannibal throws great parties. They, you should see who they're serving. They're not on the air. They've got fine Chianti. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. A fine, they actually served stuff like that at their, <laughs> at their press parties. It was pretty cool. Um, but, you know, the character of Rumpelstiltskin in the uh, now defunct Once Upon a Time Until They Killed the Character just destroyed it. Made him. But I, I mean, I actually, it was lovely to be able to interview um, both the writer, Jane Espenson, who's a fabulous uh, writer who wrote Battlestar Galactica and she's written Buffy and she's like, she's like a goddess in the sci-fi world, but also wrote the best Rumpelstiltskin. And I got to interview uh, Robert Carlyle, who played Rumpelstiltskin. Oh, wow. And getting to meet him, I actually, I sort of um, fashioned Galen um, kind of on how a slightly younger Robert Carlyle looked. Oh, so that's like that sort of um, picture in your mind. So if you could cast him, that would be it. (laughs) He's a little old for the role now, but um, I actually gave him a copy of the first book when I met him two years ago. And uh, and the book came out, and I was like, okay. So everyone was said to me, oh, you got to give him a copy of the book. And I'm like, oh, God, I feel like such an idiot to do this. I mean, no, no, you got to give him. So I did, and I wrote him a note saying, you don't even have to read the thing. So, <laughs> <laughs> but just, but just, just have it. <laughs> oh, that sounds so fun. That so. is great. Yeah, I mean, if he's, he's a little bit too old now to cast him as Galen, but uh, maybe if there's, like, flashbacks to Thomas the Reiner, maybe, or Thomas the Reimer. Yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> he has the right accent, although my character doesn't have an accent. He speaks perfect received pronunciation English. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> and I like how you said that you like writing characters who have intellect and also are damaged in a way, because, like, so many of heroes through mythology have those traits. You know, like you yeah. said, Odysseus, he got by by intellect. Um, Jason, same thing. And yeah. But they were just, like, really flawed characters, and I think that's great that you're bringing that into your writing. Yes, 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 yes. You have a whole mm-hmm. flying too close to the sun. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. You got to have the flawed heroes. They're far more interesting. They've got more lasting power. And they get by on wits. They yeah. do. They do. They absolutely do. And I think there's there's nothing less interesting than a vanilla character that is just all good and no flaws and no damage. And, you know, that's why I had to have my immortal character be able to um, really suffer physically, <laughs> emotionally. Uh, my editor, when she read the first draft, I think, of this second book, um, she was really excited to get it. And um, so I sent it to her and she says, oh, yes, I love, like, you're kicking him when he's down. Yeah, <laughs> keep going, keep going. That's like George R. R. Martin, like, twist now, twist the now knife twist, again. Yeah. <laughs> 
start that engine, just keep twisting. <laughs> I, I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's writing. And, uh, you know, that's how you keep them. Um, I guess that's how you keep your characters in line. Yeah, exactly. Their journey can't just be all the way up. I mean, right. Mm -hmm. um, all right. So um, do you quickly want to talk about um, where should people find your new book um, or your your um, your first book? Is it on bookstores or on Amazon? What do you suggest? It's everywhere. So my book. So the release of the book was caught in the great coronavirus uh, publishing stoppage. Ah, uh, yes. Mm -hmm. I just coined that. So <laughs> <laughs> copyrighted. Um, so it was the last book, I believe, out of the shop at Simon and Schuster um, till fall. So there was a hang up at the distribution, at distribution and all that. But now I, I do understand that it is available at indie bookstores um, by you know online because no indie bookstores are open, of course. Um, but you can order them online at bookshop.org. You can get it at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target. It's available in trade paperback. It is available uh, in all digital forms everywhere from Kobo to uh, Kindle to Apple Books to Google Books. It's in every digital possible milieu. So great. What about um, the first book, The Apothecary's oh, Curse? Yeah. Is that also widely oh, available? Yeah, they're pretty wide, both pretty widely available. So libraries, probably fewer libraries have uh, Alchemy than they do um, Apothecary just because no libraries are open and nobody's buying books right now mm. at that level. So, um, but some of them actually do have it, have both books on like Overdrive. So, um, but yes, Apothecary is also widely available. It's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble for sure. Um, that's probably the best places to get it now in this pandemic era. Great. Thank you so much. And um, so what is your drink of choice? Yeah, so, we got to ask that question. <laughs> there was like a, there was an amazing drink and I can't think of the name of it that I had at National Geographic's party at Comic-Con like a few years ago that smoked. It was like with dry ice, but so I can't think of the name of it, but I will tell you, I picked up this bottle. My grandmother used to make something called Vishnik. And it's like she would throw, she would put cherries or blueberries or strawberries in vodka with sugar and let it sit for like five years. And I found, and, and it was like the best stuff ever. It was so good. It made us all sleep when we were little, little kids. <laughs> um, and I actually found a bottle of it at the grocery store made with um, Maraska, I'm looking at the bottle, Maraska cherries grown on the Adriatic coast of Croatia. Wow, um, that is fancy. Yeah. yeah. Make you sleep as an adult. <laughs> yeah, well, it's 31% alcohol. So <laughs> very adult, uh, uh, I guess a very adult, very sweet kind of uh, cordial. Oh, wow. Yeah, that sounds great. Oh, yeah. So well, thank, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. And this was great. Um, we're super excited. I love the premise of your book and like the background that you gave on it. Oh, yeah. I love the settings and the different time periods. Um, and the characters from history being brought into it. I think that's so great. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it. I had a good time. Great. Thank you. All right. Um, that was our interview with um, the author, Barbara Barnett. And we are so excited to have you and go check out her books. And yes, go check out The Apothecary's Curse as well as Alchemy of Glass.